Amen. Hey, this morning, uh, you might have recognized a number of small, shorter people near you, and you thought, man, they don't know how to be quiet. And let me just spoil the rest of the service for you. They don't know how to be quiet, generally as a rule. And so if you have one of these shorter, loud, boisterous people near you, this is an opportunity for you to grow in grace, for you to refine your executive function, and for you to kind of bring all of these things to bear, trying to pay attention amidst a sea of distractions. And as you're doing it, just recognize they're completely bored. They just want to go home, and I'm standing in the way of that. And so today's Family Sunday, and so we have uh, our kids who are normally upstairs for kids' worship together with us in the service. And so it's an opportunity for us to extend grace to young parents who have their kids there and encourage them and pray for them and say, Oh God, I'm so thankful you carried me through that time, and I pray that you would carry them even as you carry us through this service. Amen? Amen. Hey, that's awesome. Hey, today we are in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. We have two sermons left in Galatians today and next Sunday. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you, for you to take home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. And then as we make our way through today, uh, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Now listen, as we look at this, and Paul is winding down his letter really uh, from here in verse 6 through verse 18, the close of the book, he's addressing a number of things and trying to bring them to a head. And so one of the things you'll observe is he returns to this issue, this discussion of we have the spirit and we have the flesh. And so he's going to bring that back. But essentially, if you're to understand what Paul is teaching us today, Paul starts with a principle. And the principle is that we are to do good, and then he finds application to that principle in three areas. We're to do good to pastors, which is funny. We're to do good to ourselves, and we are to do good to others. We're to do good to pastors, ourselves, and others. Now, why is that funny? Well, uh, probably a, a year and a half or so after I got here, we rolled into the 2nd October, which for most of you who aren't aware is referred to by at least one out of ten people as Minister Appreciation Month. That one person is an employee of Lifeway Christian Bookstore. But it's, it's referred to as Minister Appreciation Month, and I just said, listen, this whole thing makes me insanely uncomfortable. Let's just not mention it. Let's just not post about it. Let's not have anything. If somebody does something that's good, great, and amazing, and wonderful, but let's not do anything about it. Now, in the sovereignty of God, he gave Justin a birthday in October, me a birthday in October, and Carol B., a birthday in October, right? Minister Disappreciation Month. And this passage begins with this idea of, in some sense, appreciating those who serve in ministry. And that's one of the reasons this is just so comical. I thought we had escaped the month of October without any such announcement, without any such thing. All we really need is to know that Martin Luther banged those 95 theses to the, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and we're all good, set, and wonderful. And then God says, tee-hee-hee, I'm going to make him fall and break his face so that we have surgery, so that Justin preaches, which pushes the whole thing back, and all these various things, so that today we would hit this. The loudness is for the sake of the little people who are already bored. Let's read 6 through 10, and then we'll walk through together. Paul writes and says, Let the one who has taught the word 
Share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its conviction, for its power to change lives. We thank you for your son Jesus, in whom we have life, the forgiveness of sins, in whom we have and enjoy redemption. God, I pray that we would live in the fullness of what we have received from him. I pray that we would avail ourselves fully of the forgiveness we have received by his hand, by his life, by his body nailed to the cross, and by the power of his resurrection, which at once forgave us for our sins and united us with you in him by the power of your spirit. And so, God, we pray for clarity, we pray for conviction, we pray for humble and teachable hearts that long to receive correction, that long to be drawn closer to you. God, would you be in this place, send your spirit to minister to us. Would you guide us in the application of your word to our hearts. God, would you lead us to honor you in all things. We submit all of this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So notice that as Paul is going into this, he has really what in some sense looks like in verse 7 to have nothing to do with the rest of what he's been talking about. But nevertheless, he says here, let the one who is taught the word. And so we get a sense in this that it is the people of the church who are taught, and they're not taught opinions, they're not taught just kind of pontifications, they're not given even just wisdom for life, they are taught something particular which gives us an instance, or which gives us an understanding that what should be taught, what should be imparted, is always the Word. So he says, let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is something that Paul has talked about before or elsewhere within his writings. You can see it in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. 1 Timothy 3, he's talking about elders and their qualifications. He talks about deacons and their qualifications. In chapter 5, he starts giving just some basic instructions to the church. In verses 17 through 18, he says, Let the elders, the pastors, the, the bishops, the overseers, however you want to render that, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So he's building into the idea that the church who is receiving from ministers the word of God, they're being encouraged to grow in it, to learn in it, to abide in this, that they are to pay, compensate those who are doing said teaching. Now, it, it, we can all find kind of uh, gross examples of how pastors are compensated too much and how they give Christianity a black eye. And, and maybe that's kind of where the idea within Baptist circles came from. Lord, if you'll keep him humble, we'll keep him. I'm glad y'all don't know that very well. If you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. And so we can think of Creflo Dollar. You can think of Jesse Duplantis. You can think of Kenneth Copeland. All three men, if you were to write their name and type their name and then Jet beside it, 
What you're going to find is these men own aircraft worth tens of millions of dollars. And they have insane interviews with Kenneth Copeland where he's defending the, his reasons, the necessity for him getting to fly on this jet. He says, listen, I can't be stuck up there in this metal tube flying full of demons. I feel the same way when I fly in roach coach back there. I mean, I'm six foot one. My knees are driving into the back of the person in front of me, and I feel myself under oppression. Maybe you don't fly internationally, but that's what it feels like. So I feel the brother's pain. But we hear their examples and the opulence in which they live, and we recognize, okay, there, there has to be something to this that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We recognize that the vast majority, at least the vast majority of the pastors I know, aren't getting wealthy. I don't know a single person that has gone into ministry and said, I can't wait to be a pastor. I'm going to be loaded. Unless they were talking about with grief and sorrow in people and heartache. Paul says here, he just teaches this word plainly. He says, let the one who's taught the word share in all good things with the one who teaches. One of the ways you serve the church is by giving financially to the church. And one of the ways that your money is spent provides for groceries for my family, provides for groceries for Jesse's family, provides for groceries, hamburger helper even, for Justin's family. <laughs> right? Hey, listen, processed foods are really expensive now. I'm just saying, if you're considering an end-of-year gift, take that into consideration. And I can tell you that here at Ridgecrest, and I think I speak on behalf of all the staff, we feel incredibly blessed and encouraged by the way we are supported by y'all. We don't feel like we are subsistence living. Now listen, if Creflo and Jesse and, and Kenneth call me and they say, would you like to join our jet club? I'm going to say, I don't have the cash for that. And I don't think you should either though. We are incredibly blessed and encouraged and nurtured by your generosity. And so when I encounter this and I have conversations with friends who are struggling, or I remember some missionary friends of ours, that they received in the mail a box of used tea bags with a note that said, these were only used once and still have life in them. Blessings in the Spirit for you and your mission. It's, it's a shame that some of us set such an incredibly low bar to joining in and committing financially to an organization or to an entity that what we look around and what we find are those things that we have no use for and think, we don't have a use for it, maybe they'll find it useful. When the clear instruction is that all of us need to be invested financially to the degree that we are able. And some of us are very able and very unwilling. Some of us are very unable, and in God's grace, he has given you an extreme desire to give in your poverty. And for that, you should be richly rewarded. For that, you have ministered to me and to my family and to the ministry of this church. The clear and simple instruction here is that one of the ways you do good, one of the ways you apply this principle is by contributing financially to the ministry of the church, which directly impacts the staff the one who teaches. And then look what he does in verse 7. He teaches us this theological truth. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
Whatever one sows, that shall he reap. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that shall he reap. And so we have this understanding that he goes in there, and, and there is this proclivity, there is this tendency, this leaning in us to essentially go throughout our lives saying, God's more or less ignorant to the things that I'm doing. He's more or less okay with the things that I'm doing. He's not all that observant. It's a big world. There's billions of people. Surely he can't pay attention to what I'm doing. And so I'm just going to slack off in this area or that area. I'm really not going to pay attention to these things or that. And what Paul is waking them up to this reality of is when you engage with this mindset, when you engage in this way of living, essentially you're saying that by my pattern of life, I get to absolutely mock and ridicule God. Now the picture here is so incredibly grotesque. The picture is actually of, of a person standing before God, and so God is here, and here's the person, and they physically lift up their face, they turn up their nose, and they turn away from the Lord. And so physically, they're demonstrating, I give no deference to you. Physically, they're demonstrating, I give you no allegiance. Physically, they're demonstrating, I can do whatever I want, and you can have no say about it. And Paul just comes in, and he says, listen here. The way you're engaging, the way that you're being encouraged to move in the tendency of your sinful heart is such that in actuality what you're doing is mocking God. When we engage in sin, any manner of sin, in outward sin or inward sin, in disbelief, in whatever function we engage in, and we say in our hearts or we say to people around us, God is unconcerned. It doesn't matter. I'm going to live however I want to live. This is in actuality what you're doing. You are mocking God. Paul's word in there is a caution. Paul's word in there is an invitation to repentance. Paul's word in there is, is a kindly rebuke. And, and asking you to come back because what he tells us is whatever one sows, that also will he reap. In essence, those things you invest yourself in tend to be those things you get back in life. The things you give your time to or the things you show value to. So if I want my kids to grow up and to love and to follow Jesus, and, and I think if you're a parent in here, you'd say, I think that sounds like a good thing. I think I'd like this. But in actuality, the way you spend your time is to always take your kids to sporting events, to only maximize those things, and to spend all of your time, all of your energy, and most weekends out of the year investing in those things, you're sowing to extracurricular. You're sowing to experience. You're sowing to enjoyment. And you're deceiving yourself. All the while, you might articulate what you want and what you value in your kids if it's they grow up loving the Lord. But in the laboratory of life and within your family, you're not teaching them that. You're teaching them to love golf. You're teaching them to love softball, baseball, soccer, football, hunting, whatever it is. Your kids are watching how you spend time. Many of us dads, your kids know that every time deer season rolls around, you are gone, you are absent. Like five out of seven Sundays, seven out of eight Sundays, you're gone. Now listen, I understand what this is like. I love to hunt. My family is from Louisiana. We are backwoods. I had a cousin, and I'm not endorsing this. Listen, I had a cousin that every time deer season would roll around, he would quit his job, go on unemployment so that it wouldn't interrupt his hunting. 
Now, he poached the rest of the year, so you have to wonder why he did that. I guess that was a principled move on his part. But whatever we sow into, we're going to reap out of it. So Paul tells us, essentially, we can sow to one of two things. You can sow to the flesh, or you can sow to the spirit. You can sow to the flesh, or you can sow to the spirit. Look at verse 8. He says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit, from God's Holy Spirit, reap eternal life. Now Paul said this similarly in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. He said, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So we have this understanding that as a Christian, you're called to live a life unto the Spirit. And you're called to live against, to push back against the things of the flesh. You know, everything you experience uh, from when you go to work, you go to school, you go to Walmart, you're just having conversations with people in life. There is this magnetic, in some sense, pull of society and culture to engage and to live in the flesh because it's immediate, it's tactile. It is assailing us constantly. And there is a spiritual foe that all he wants you to do is to live more in the flesh and less in the spirit. If he can get you to live more in the flesh progressively over the course of your life, then he can lead you further and further and further away from the spirit, essentially leaving your ministry dead and abolished. And God delights in bringing us more and more into submission to the Spirit so that we look more like Him, so that we talk more like Him, so that generosity and the Spirit's dependence grows in our lives, and so that when we think about the deeds of the flesh, we have no recognition of them in our life. Now, John Stott, writing and, and talking about what these deeds of the flesh look like, what they in fact are, this is what he had to say. He said to... To sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to cost it, cuddle, and stroke it instead of crucifying it. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds, and every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious evil influence we know we cannot resist every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up praying every time we read something or see something we shouldn't every time we take a risk which strains our self-control we are sowing 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 to the flesh some christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness he says holiness is a harvest whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. Paul says, listen, if you sow to your own flesh, you will reap from your flesh corruption. He paints this picture of rotting, putrid flesh. Rotting, putrid flesh. But it feels so natural. It is readily endorsed by the world. It's readily endorsed and appreciated and encouraged and, or not even spoken about within Christian circles. And we see the insidious 
fingerprints of our enemy in such actions. When we sow to the flesh, when we find ourselves living for our comforts, when we find ourselves living for our benefit, when we find ourselves not concentrating on doing good, we are living solely for the enjoyment of ourselves. And in those moments, there's this enticing, intoxicating pursuit that longs to see our hearts aligned with the flesh and to have nothing to do with the Spirit. Paul, in this, 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 this picture, this philosophy, this principle of doing good, says, listen, you can only do good to yourself if you sow to the Spirit. The immediacy of the gratification of the flesh makes it seem like when we are doing good to ourselves that we are walking in kind and goodness to the Lord. But what he says is that the flesh and its desires and its pursuits that he described in chapter 5 and verse 19 of the book of Galatians. He says, now these are the works of the flesh and they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then things like these. It is not hard for us to come up with the distinctions of what it is to sow to the flesh. But it is hard to remove that from our heart. It is hard to remove that from our pattern of life. So he gives us this warning. He says, you can do no good to yourself while you're seeking to please the flesh. You can only do good to yourself when you're seeking to live to the Spirit. Paul described the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And so what we see in this, okay, and so I, I, I get, Matt, that I can't live according to the flesh. And so that the pursuit of being wealthy is empty. The pursuit of working hard and advancing one's job is not empty. But the pursuit of just wealth for wealth's sake, for my soul satisfaction and benefit and enjoyment, that is empty. Because I'm making wealth my end goal. I'm making that the supreme thing. And I give my time away from family. I give my time away from church. I give my time away from the Lord to pursue that end goal. So the devil is great. He takes something that is good, hard work, and he perverts it and twists it into the pursuit of wealth. I want comfort. I want something better. I deserve something better. I want something newer. I want something shinier. So I've got to die to the flesh. And I've got to live to the Spirit. The one who sows to the Spirit, who's sowing joy, who's sowing peace. He says, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now listen, this is incredibly important. This requires a conscious decision on your part. Daily. Sometimes moment by moment. Will I submit myself to God's Spirit? Because His Spirit is the one that brings eternal life. Do you notice in the midst of sowing to the flesh, we are reaping, getting back a payment of corruption, of deadness in our flesh? 
but in sowing to the Spirit and living in radical dependence to God that the Spirit himself delivers us eternal life. We're not getting for ourselves eternal life. We're receiving unto ourselves from the Spirit eternal life. There's a radical distinction here. Because on the one hand, living to the flesh, I get to live selfishly, I get to live all in my own power, all in my own ability, but living according to the Spirit, I have to, in some sense, say, I am the liability. You are the benefit. Help me crucify my flesh and live according to the power of the Spirit, because what I want isn't something that comes to me immediately. It's only something that I receive later. This eternal life comes after this life. The flesh cries out and says to us, you need to be satisfied now. The spirit cries and says, die to self now so that you can be satisfied later. And therein lies the difficult for too many of us. Delayed gratification. The ability to put off what we think we need, what we think we deserve. So moving to the aspect of others, look at what Paul writes in verse 9. He says, do not let us grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He's, he's kind of pulling us out of this understanding. He says, listen, if you want to sow to the, to the Spirit, this is what it looks like. It looks like doing good, but it looks like not giving up, not losing heart in doing good. Now, candidly, this is where it begins to get difficult. Because it feels like, in some sense, it is on me to stay involved. It is on me to stay enthused. It is on me to stay energetic in the pursuit of doing good. And that's exhausting. That's like giving your three-year-old a box of Oreos and trying to brush their teeth at the same time. You make no progress. And they get hyper and hyper and hyper. And your patience goes down and down and down. And the Oreos go everywhere and everywhere and everywhere. But look at the call here. Let us not grow weary of doing good. This is the beautiful thing in this. He doesn't look at Tom and say, Tom, don't grow weary in doing good. He doesn't look, he doesn't look at any one of us and say, don't grow weary in doing good. He says, let us. It is a truth of existence that we are going to wear out that we are going to get tired. It is a grace of God that we are going to wear out and get tired at different intervals, at different times. And that's why he comes into this and says, let us as a church, let us as a people, let us as a community not grow weary of doing good. So I recognize that I'm not able to run without taking a break. To do so would kill me. Actually, I'm going to stop way before that. But to do so would cause harm. To do so is hubris, to do so is arrogant, to do so is prideful. None of us have in ourselves the ability to run uninterrupted. We need each other, and this is why he says that let us together do good. And if we do this at the end of our lives, he says, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So what do we do with this? Well, this is where he started this idea of doing good and doing good to others. Look at verse 10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So the principle is to do good. We do good to pastors. We do good to ourselves. We do good to others. And then within this subset of others, people outside of yourself, he says there are principally two groups. There's the church, the church community, and then there are just people everywhere. And you're called to do good to people everywhere, regardless of their affiliation, political identity, whatever. You're called to do good to them. But you're called to specifically give extra focus to people within the household of faith. Let's just think about this in terms of what we looked at last week in chapter 6 and verse 2. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ inasmuch as you have opportunity. So we recognize that that it could be that God has blessed you terrifically in a financial way, and you know that there's a brother or sister in this fellowship or in our community who needs help financially. And so you go to them, not with a sense of bravado, and say, look at the awesome thing God did for me, because I'm not a sinner like you, and I'd like to help you. If you're willing to, if you're willing to admit that you're a terrible person and God has plagued you with poverty because of your terribleness, that's just, that's just crazy. And depending on who it is, they might still take the money. But depending on everything you're a terrible person for saying such a thing what we do in the middle of this is we're looking for opportunity we're looking for ways to use the giftings that god has given us we're looking for ways we're looking for opportunities to use the hurt god has given us to serve the people around us a few days ago i had an opportunity uh, to go in to pray with somebody, they called, reached out, and said, hey, would you come and would you pray with me? And so I get there, and, and, and this is a request that, that those of us on staff and deacons and so on and so forth get constantly. Would you come and pray with me? And so I had an opportunity to go in to pray with this person, and I'm there, and I'm praying with them. And it became clear that I was not there to pray with this person. I began to share their story and, 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 and the hurt and the anguish they'd faced And it became clear, God began to speak to me, you need to bear his burden. You need to bear his burden. So I began to feel God moving in my heart and calling me to share a point of particular pain and sorrow in my past that this person needed to hear. That this brother needed to know he was not alone. That this brother needed to know that somebody else had faced a similar hardship, a similar difficulty, and that God was still working in my life. This is what it looks like to do good to people around. It's not always about writing a check. It's not always about going over and helping them pull their ox out of the ditch. I don't think very many of us own oxen anymore. Raise your hand if you own it. Never mind. It's not about doing something. Sometimes it's just about being there with them. Sometimes it's a part of sharing something vulnerable and broken in you so that they might be encouraged. And there's a willingness to this. There's a desperateness to this. That this creates community that this creates within this crucible of life an opportunity for people to feel cared for and to feel nurtured. He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. 
to begin to ask the question of ourselves, who has God placed in my path to do good to? Now let's think about the other side of this for just a moment. Some of us in this room and in this hearing right now, God has not placed an opportunity for you to do good to someone, but he has placed a significant difficulty in your life, allowed you to experience a horrific hardship so that someone in this body can serve the Lord by doing good to you. And I think that's a hard thing for us to receive. In a community of people who are so much more comfortable being the one who does the good thing, does the act of service, it's much harder to be served. But if I were to go from section to section and just begin to ask the question, what hardships are you dealing with? What difficulties are you currently struggling with? We'd be here all week. And it would be overwhelming and it would be burdensome, and it would be devastating. And it would be a picture of God's grace. The financial hardship you have, the depression you're going through, the marital strife you're experiencing, the difficulty with your children, the problems with your home, your mental instability, your problems with anger, your disappointment with the people in your lives, this is an opportunity for the people around you to do good to you. Will you let them? Do you trust the Lord to the degree that he's requiring you to be open, transparent, and broken with the people around you? so that God can minister to you by doing good to you through someone. The way we all came into faith was that God reached into our deadness. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, God gives us this perfect model for what it looks like to do good to people who cannot help themselves or respond to us in doing good back to us. God found us in our deadness, in our sin, lost and adrift indifferent in rejecting the gospel and he showed his goodness to us in sending his son to die for our sins and in dying he entered into the grave and in resurrection he overcame sin and death and he invites us to experience the forgiveness of sins the goodness of God in the person of Jesus so that in some sense we might turn And be good to those around us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would desire 
to do good. That we would long to serve you. God, that in so doing, that we might serve our church. God, that we would do good to ourselves and pursuing what it looks like to sow to the Spirit instead of sowing to the flesh. God, that you would confront us with opportunities. Opportunities for doing good to those around us. So God, just in these next moments, would you help us as we pray to consider who around us that we can do good to? And God, in these moments, would you cause us, some of us maybe, just to consider who around us we need to give an opportunity to do good to us? God, would you lead us by the power of your Spirit to think about that? God, still others in this place and in this hearing, they need to allow you to come into their hearts to save them. The good that you extend to humanity is the forgiveness of sins. And so God, I pray that if any in here have yet to submit themselves to you, to come to know you as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that they do so that they would seek out one of the pastors or elders or turn to the person beside them and say, help me to know Jesus. God, would you unite our hearts in song as we prepare to worship you. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.